Hello and welcome to another episode of the Testing Peers. I'm joined tonight by Russell. Hello. David. Hello. And unfortunately no Chris. I'm sure we'll cope without him. Mm. This podcast is kindly sponsored by Saffron QA. Saffron QA is a provider of recruitment and consultancy services exclusively for the software testing industry. More details can be found in the show notes and on our website. Tonight, we're going to talk about the very fun topic of defect management. All the fun we've had over the years with the numbers of defects we've dealt with. Before we dive into that, though, guys, what's the most annoying defect you found in a real-life, everyday-life product? Oh, good question. I guess I can tell you the one I found to say. I'm sorting. I really hate bad sorting. <laughs> you know, it's a weird one, I admit. But if you're trying to do something, you ask it to the e-commerce website or something these days and you click sort by price or sort by something else. And it does this, but then it sticks loads and loads of marketing almost ones in between with, let's say, sort by price. And suddenly there's a, I'll use an example, auto trader today. And there's suddenly a recommended one. And then there is a bumped up one. And then there's another one. And actually you're scrolling through it and actually three out of the five cars aren't actually in any order whatsoever it's all random yes i have experienced that one as well where you search by geography and then you get one that's 400 miles away as the number one pick yeah so anything that kind of you use the filters and or use the sort of um, the ordering things and it does ignores them or it's so badly done I, I can understand having one thrown in somewhere maybe and it's highlighted quite obviously it's kind of thrown in there to highlight it but when it's just in the list and you can't really distinguish it that's kind of a defect to me because usability-wise, it just makes me not want to go to that app. It really turns me off using it. And in fact, I did stop using that app for that exact reason. That's kind of the most pressing defect I've come across. And it, it builds my frustration up. I want to do something. I go to a tool and it just makes my life harder. And it just makes me want to turn off from that. And I'm guessing it's by design. That's the thing that annoys me more than anything else. This is a deliberate attempt to promote things that just sends me in the direction. I consider that a defect in my world. Yeah. I would agree with that one. David, any thoughts? Well, I've got a couple, actually. <laughs> so one thing is inconsistency in, again, it's similar to sorting, but it's alphabetical order or the, the way that names are introduced. So we've got our finance system for doing our timesheets, which is ranked by surname for the employees. And then we've got Lotus Notes. We still use that, which obviously ranks by first name. So, and often the people who report to me, I know by their first names and I don't always use their surname. So it's really annoying having everything ranked by surname in the finance system because I have to put those extra levels in of remembering what their actual surname is. My second one is, again, a similar thing is filtering on websites. Whenever we try and filter on particular things, it's never quite the ones you want. And they're vaguely done by range of price or you know, brand name or whatever, but sometimes, and again, going to Russell's example, sometimes it says whether they're in stock or not. And the website says they're in stock and then you go and pay for them as my daughter found mm. out today. And then it says, oh no, you can't have it. It's out of stock. And then you go back to the website and it still says it's in stock and, and you go through, no, you can't have it. And it just causes frustration and uh, annoyance and disappointment for my daughter. When you say systems that know they can manage their stock inventory better, really frustrating for those sites that don't that let you purchase it even and then send you the emails afterwards they're sort of really annoying and on that same theme i guess this is more complaint about ux now i think to a degree but only three more in stock 
and then you buy three and there's still three more in stock. Yeah, that's a marketing ploy, apparently. It is. Yes. Apparently it encourages more users to buy things of this. Well, I suppose stuff. if people think they're onto a, the last few, well, it's like any yeah. bargain. If anyone sees a discount, then they immediately think they're onto a yeah. good thing. Uh, from a simple yeah. point of view, though, if it you know if you subtract three from three, you should get yeah. zero. Therefore, yeah. in my head, there's a defect with your software because <laughs> it's not subtracted the correct amount of uh, items from your Very stock. True. But uh, yeah, I completely agree. It's deliberately done and it is a marketing point. But uh, for me, when I first saw it, it was like, you've got a book. Oh, no, you haven't. You're just being evil. I don't like you. I don't know if it links back to the anchoring that we've we've talked about on previous episodes, but we seem to all <laughs> talked about similar things because my example is main, maybe not with the filtering or the sorting of that, but it is with a system such as Amazon where you have to do lots of filtering and stuff like that. My frustration is the in-app notifications or the app notifications on an iPhone when it says your thing's out for delivery. And especially if you've got your screen using for something else. So if you're watching something or you've got it set as your sat-nav on your, in your car, the pop-up comes down from the top, says this thing's being delivered. And like every other app, it goes away. With the Amazon app, it stays there. And you have to physically move it yourself to get rid of it. Okay. And for me, that's a big frustration, especially when I'm driving and I've got my sat-nav on and I don't really want to have to touch the screen in any way while I'm driving. And then this big notification comes up and takes up half the screen because it's telling you your delivery's out. And so you just reminded me of another one, um, which is pertinent for this time. You know the COVID app? In the oh, UK, yes. And how it kind of pops up saying you've been near somebody who blah, 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 and then vanishes and there's no more trace of it ever yeah. at all. And their solution to fixing that defect was to put another message up which says, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Because it's kind of embedded into the software and what Apple and others have provided them, they can't change that. So therefore, their solution is, it's like saying, oh yeah, we didn't subtract three, but don't worry, we, we've taken three out of stock, don't worry. It's kind of working around the defect, which I give yeah. them credit for their pragmatism. But um, at the same time, it is quite amusing. But in real life, I guess, when we manage defects, sometimes the solution isn't fixing it. Sometimes it is the pragmatist way. That is true. And that leads very nicely onto our topic for this evening. Very good. <laughs> well done, Russell. Trying to be Chris. <laughs> Trying to be Chris. We haven't got the glue here tonight, so bear with us. So yeah, defects. What's your experience? Have you had some good experience with how you've managed defects, looked at defects in your careers? I certainly have had to do it a lot. <laughs> it's, it's something as a tester that you can't really escape. Indeed. I think every place I've worked has got a different system, but they're always kind of a similar. You prioritise them, you work with different people to decide what to do, and then you work to get them into backlogs and other things. I've worked predominantly agile, so it's conversations. I think when it's going smoothly, and I think in certainly my experience, a lot are quite smooth in terms of prioritising them, agreeing with them, deciding what to do. The problems with defect management I've always found are the times where disagreement or where you go as a tester, this is catastrophic, you could be losing data, and then someone goes, ah, it's fine, it's only an email address or something like that. Hopefully it's not email address because that would be bad, but you get the idea when it's just, oh yeah, it's just a postcode or something you know, small in relation to other things. Those debates are always where I think it always gets interesting when debates about priority of them, everyone can label them a priority but it's actually then the action to resolve them and work through resolving them and getting them dealt with. It's usually the most complicated part of defect management. I think we can all sit in a room or all sit in a desk and put numbers against things. That I think is relatively easy. Agreeing them is harder than the actual actions is always the hardest. It's my general overview anyway. I have to agree. I think the way that defects are managed is quite tricky. I've been in Russell's place before where 
I think that a particular issue is a showstopper and products shouldn't go out. However, you know, when you talk to the developers, or whatever, they go, oh, no, it's only a minor thing. We'll, we can still run with that. It'll be fine. And the other thing that I think sometimes we have trouble with in defect management is when the volume of defects overloads the system that you've got. And I think that's a real problem, especially if you've got a triaging system or something and someone's away yeah. and... And so therefore there is a blockage or there's someone there with the skill set that can tell the severity or the priority of that particular bug and that so there is a delay. So therefore then that has a knock-on effect on both what the initial diagnosis of the bug and then obviously the subsequent work that's necessary to, to rectify it. Oh, curiosity. Do you have many of you kind of worked in places where you almost have like a formal person or group that defect triages or prioritise everything? Or have you kind of gone the more agile... Um, anyone's allowed to and then it's kind of sense checked later i guess which way round have you guys done i've experienced both in my first role we were only really paying lip service to agile we had bugzilla as a bug tool and we had defect manager the test manager the qa manager whatever they want to be called was effectively a defect manager as well and they ran any bug that was raised they ran triage sessions on it with a group of people They'd make sure certain fields were filled in as part of the defect and they'd log it and then they'd track these defects through. Mm. I remember being like a month or so in and we were in a place where we had defect backlogs that weren't getting touched that must have been in the hundreds and maybe even in the thousands of defects that had just not been touched for cycle upon cycle. And we were being told these defects were still valid, that we had to keep them in because one day we would get to them and some of them were 10 years old. So we took a decision at one point, right, anything older than that date, we're just going to delete. And you would not believe the amount of kickoff we got from people within the business that said, no, 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 we can't, we can't, that, that, we might need to get that to that one day. And these are bugs that were li linked to how something performed on Windows 98 or something like this. And you're like, well, Windows 98 is out of support now. We're not going to worry about how it support, how it works on Windows 98. Let's just get rid of it. Let's get our backlog down to a list of defects that actually we care about and that stand a chance of getting into a future release. When you talk about deleting these things, do you actually mean the physical act of deletion so there's no record of them ever, or is it almost... No, it's, it's marking them as closed in, the, in okay. the tool. We had Bugzilla, and it was just a closed field or, or whatever, resolved okay. closed or whatever. There's, there's different ways of doing that. And, yeah. Sorry, yeah, you're right. There was two stages, and this is another thing that I'll talk about in a minute, is the process, the defect flow. When you resolved a defect, there was a resolved field, and then there was a reason why you resolved it, and there was a sure. resolved fixed, resolved will not fix, resolved rejected, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And if you put things in like will not fix, you then have to put justification as to why. Okay. So we went through these thousands of defects and literally had to blanket call them all will not fix due to age. Too old. Yeah. Too old, yeah, basically. At the time, um, one of the defects we could have mentioned earlier, there wasn't a way of block doing that. So you couldn't do a block at any one point. You had to do every single individual defect at a time. It's a fun job. So these three-hour meetings where we're going through defect triage, trust me, my life was that fun. It was literally, that's another one that's over 10 years old. Let's just delete it. Let's just, will not fix, will not fix. Anyone fancy getting me a coffee? Will not fix, will not fix. That kind of meeting. But that leads on to the process flow as well. Go on, tell us about the process flow, because it's clearly... <laughs> really brings back memories. He's, he's going to have flashbacks. I, I'm struggling already. I'm starting to shake. It was just a case of I've now being in a test leadership position, I'm going through the process at the moment of working out how we can simplify our defect flow in JIRA and how we can reduce it down to literally having three or four stages of, you know, it's open, it's in-dev, it's in-test, it's fixed or whatever. 
mm. and a couple of scenarios around it. There were so many points where it had to be checked. I'm trying to think of the examples now, but there was a stage when, when it's raised, there was then an in triage. There was then a in dev. There was then a, it's been rejected by dev, reason why, or has been a, mm. it just felt like the whole flow was, it was a monstrous diagram. The process flow was was huge and it could have been simplified. And actually in its role since then as well, the team spent a good two months defining the process flow for DPEX. And again, it's signed off by several layers of people to try and make sure it was right. And I'm sitting there going, just simplify it. These defects, we're spending more time worrying about the process around them than mm. actually the defects themselves. In the time we spent worrying about this process, we could have fixed 20 of the defects. I sometimes feel that there's a culture around defects, yeah. that defects are important. I, again, going back to earlier roles where defects were used as a way of gaming the system because the QA team had a sort of a metric that was measured about how many defects they raised each week. So people were raising defects for the sake of raising defects. They were raising defects based because a full stop should have been in a certain place on the website or in the app or, or the text wasn't quite the right size or color. And, you know, things that wouldn't matter if we actually were, were testing it fully. Yeah. Or if you worked in conjunction with the team, you wouldn't exactly bug, you just fix it quick. And they were also buddying up with developers who were deliberately injecting defects into the code so that they could then give the defect to them to say, there you go, that, that will make sure you, you hit your quota for the week. Here's a couple of defects I've injected in for you. Anyone listening, this is why you don't measure testing quality by measuring exactly. defects. Yes. Because that is naturally what happens to people. Yes. yes. You will pick every single thing out rather than and yep. put them in separately well, just to make sure that you have your numbers. And unfortunately, that then swells the whole bug absolutely. tracking and system. And this is how we got to the problem we had. Which makes it... Uh, un- and also, yeah. the, other, the other difficulty about that is the fact that sometimes if you produce lots of bugs in a row, you can sometimes miss important information. If they're seen in isolation, it doesn't actually make any sense. It has to be yeah. seen in correlation with other... Well, things. I'll give you an example of one that I, I remember vividly that was... Um, one issue, one code functional functional problem, but it happened on every Windows OS. So guess what the person did? They raised an individual defect for every Windows OS. So there must have been seven or eight, because there was 32-bit, 64-bit. There was Windows Server 2008, R2, as well as R1. Every single Windows OS, they raised a separate defect for. So you've got 12 defects for one functional issue. So it's great for the developer, because he, when he fixes it, he's fixed 12 defects in one go, and that makes him look good. The culture was all wrong. And actually, mm. that culture, Russell touched on at the beginning, where it's more agile, where there's a much more communication importance around defects. And actually, it isn't about, oh, we need to raise this in the system. It's actually more about, let's just get it fixed. Yes, you might need to keep track of the defects in some form, but you minimize the detail that's in there. And you, you spend more time working out the problem, resolving it in the right way, not making a quick hack, but actually fixing it properly. The care is in the product rather than the process of raising the defects. You do raise an interesting point, though, with the, the sort of number of minor bugs, you know, with the sort of full stops and formatting, is that sometimes when we come to product release, the number of minor bugs can make the product really annoying for the end user. And although you're looking at all the major bugs, you know, whatever, but a multitude of minor bugs can build up to be a major turn off a bit like we were talking about in websites with auto trade or whatever if if it doesn't work properly and you'll get frustrated with it you will switch off and not use it yeah i must admit the agile teams i've worked in to go to simon's point about kind of the workflow it's the same workflow as any other ticket 
apart from it's a typed bug usually. It doesn't have any other process. Where I've worked, I've tried to encourage the team to prioritize with stakeholders and things how important that bug is. Testers generally go, it's massively important or not, but then they generally have a follow-up conversation. And as Simon said, the culture is collaborate together and only in rare occasions is there disagreement. Most people found the common ground. In the kind of production system problems, then that's where we ended up with a triage process put in place because we couldn't manage the quality of the defects. Mm. Certainly I found that with an agile team, scrum team in particular, to say, let's say the quality of the defects weren't good enough. Well, you're self-performing sort of team. You're there to help each other. Feedback loops quickly get the developers telling the testers, well, in fact, you didn't tell me what operating system makes my life harder. Could you do that in the future? Yeah, sure. It allows it to evolve to be good enough. And I've generally avoided specifying to the nth degree anything around what is the minimum for a team in the bug and as they're going. I have specified you're not going to fix it there and then or in that day, and you probably should keep track of it. Yeah, That's about as much guidance as I've generally given. I've avoided it. But the live system bugs, I've had Simon's problem. I had a thousand. I had to close loads, and I did it one by one. And I reviewed them to make sure that they weren't major and we hadn't missed them. That was not a fun process. It was better, but then I think by the time I finished, we'd gone from a thousand to 200. Yeah. Which is much more likely to be fixed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, a few of those in each release or whatever. Yeah, fine. Yeah. But, but also, like we're saying about the number of defects, if you get too many, you can get lost in the process and you can have the ability to miss important ones because it, it just gets lost in the noise. And you do have to keep control and keep a low number or move yeah. a couple of out in order to make sure that you can concentrate and control what's actually being fixed. I wish we reviewed them before we got to the point where we reviewed them when we got to the thousand mm. because yeah. we found some ones we should have fixed but because no one had shouted we hadn't and again that perpetuates the culture of if you shout loud you get your thing fixed it's a whole different ball game that i'll probably not go into here yeah it's easy to miss one when you have lots and that's the challenge and it's about balancing them you know those thousand were distributed across 17 teams it wasn't one team with a thousand luckily but um, it's very easy to miss your backlog or to forget Agile backlog management is a classic case of if you're not good at it, then they grow to huge, huge things. And there's kind of an art in helping product owners manage those backlogs, including removing old defects, including removing old stories that was, yeah, yeah, for this project that we did in 2016, it was going to do this, but we haven't done it yet. A lot of software allows you to, set, as Simon said, mark it as won't do. You don't have to delete it entirely. You can just remove it from view. I definitely encourage good sort of maintenance of defects and stories or anything else to get rid of dead wood because as David has said, you can see the wood for the trees then. Something I've always tried to do as well is, as you say, David, when you've got lots of defects, especially minor defects that can impact the overall quality system, is trying to, even though they're minor, visualize where those defects are and how they're impacting the system. And if you can see a cluster that are impacting one particular area, then actually they might all be minor individually, but together collectively they are an issue that could cause a customer some pain. So let's do something about those. Let's raise one more, more higher severity, higher priority ticket, link them all to it, fix that one, find the solution and solve the problem if that's the case. 
I sometimes think, as you mentioned earlier, Russell, it's pragmatism with defects. It's actually what is the best way forward for the customer, for the development process, for the product. Yeah, I've always relied, hopefully, on the testers and the team to say, look, if you're seeing lots of them and we're not fixing them, tell us. Because mm. your eyes are better than the ability to look at that thousand list. We did group things, but you can't group things to the, the user journey necessarily as easily. You can, yeah. but you can get hundreds and it's hard to link it to multiple. So if you see lots of little defects as you're going through things, tell us, and then we realize that actually the combined journey isn't great. You know, you've got a spelling mistake here. You've got a slight different coloring here. You've got a drop down that doesn't quite fit on page here. You've got um, a little bit of overlapping text here. That's the journey you've got. You don't look like you've got a good product. So you need to start fixing them. Each one of those, I wouldn't have as a critical bug. I would have them I should be fixing. And obviously, but the four of them says, oh, I've got to make an improvement here. And again, it helps drive conversations. And I've sat down with product owners many times to kind of help them drive quality in their products. I think it's the best way I can phrase it. And they generally listen because they care 60% of the time. Sometimes they have other priorities. And yeah, and it is that pragmatism about, okay, getting this shipped is fine. Next sprint, perhaps, maybe you can do quite a few more bugs than you have this sprint. We did an evil thing where we said that we expected every sprint to at least contain one production bug. If it didn't, you have to come and speak to me. And I wasn't a nice person always. I know it's hard to believe. I can't believe that for a second. (laughs) Generally, they did it. They often overachieved that. They often did two or three. Another thing we've got to think about is actually the quality of the actual bug reports in themselves or the issue reports Mm. and the consistency. We're talking about recognizing clusters and things. If there isn't consistency in tagging where it is found or what operating system or whatever details is necessary for that, or even just a good description of it, that can take so much more time in the triaging or identifying those areas that can be a, a problem and have a cluster inside them. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in the case where if the defects aren't fixed straight away, if they've got no information in there, then it's going to be closed and then nothing's going to be done with it. If there's not enough information to make a decision. Yeah. I, go back to when I was first starting out as a tester back in 2010 I had a very good I think I've mentioned before a very good mentor at the time that was all about making sure that we documented our processes and documented everything we found and people would come back and know exactly what we were thinking at the time and he had this template for defects within Bugzilla that I stuck to the whole time I was I was in that role then from then on it was quite a detailed thing it made sure you had numbered steps for steps to reproduce that you put enough detail in that anyone could know which operating system, know anything else to do with the system that was in place was set up correctly, that you were doing this at the exact point. It was very, very detailed and it made me become very thorough and it helped me learn more about my exploratory testing process and how I document that as well. So learning how to be thorough at that point led on to other things later on. But it surprised me when I then started exploring the outer community and learning more about testing outside of my company because I was in that bubble where everything we did in testing in our company was the only way testing was done. We've all been there. And it wasn't even what testing in other teams within the same company did, but you're in that bubble. You think that's the only way things are done. And you start realizing that people didn't raise defects in the same way, that people didn't pay the same much attention to the defect detail. So I guess my question there is then, what is the right detail? I'll give you a pragmatic answer again if you want. <laughs> it's going to be um, it depends, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's, of course. That's, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we did a lot of training with that. Things that, bugs that we fixed slowly, which were generally production bugs, because uh, the system had already gone out, unless it was just recently released, those sort of defects. We trained a lot of our kind of support teams to raise the sort of bugs, as you mentioned. 
with you know steps to reproduce, screenshots, as much detail as possible. Earmark what it is. Tell us what the customer impact is. Just say it doesn't work. Does that stop them doing something that's really really important? Because I may read it and think it doesn't, but if you tell me, then I can help prioritize it better. We've done a lot of training with those sort of guys on the, that sort of area. The ones in Sprint, as I said before, we just did whatever's enough. You own this. You did the work, and you should be fixing it before it's released. We kind of had the whole don't introduce any bugs. There were exceptions. There definitely wasn't a zero tolerance. It was just, if you do, you need to call it out, tell us and explain it. And the process to get it out with bugs was harder than the process to get it out without bugs. So they often fix them whilst they're doing it. And that's kind of how we did it, I guess. I think it is a pragmatism. Depending on the type of bug, is it going to last forever? If it's going to be fixed tomorrow, do less notes. But you can only do that if you have a culture where it's common that you fix things fast and fix other things slow. If we put them on a backlog, spend a week in a triage meeting, da-da-da-da, then that approach would definitely not work for you. You'd have to get detail earlier and it would be slower. I guess that's why I don't advocate lots of um, defect management review meetings and things like that. Avoid them if you can. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I, I think I've spent far too much time recently discussing defect priority definitions and what each priority means and how we well, how we communicate that to everybody within the organization because in my current role, it's a very large company and very split into different areas and every team has their own definitions, every team has their own process and it's trying to centralize that process in some respects and everyone having the same definitions, which is next to impossible. Yeah, question if it's needed. Well, absolutely, this is it. We need to make sure, certainly in my areas, where the only real area where defects are actually checked and, and looked at is the end-to-end integration stage. You've got the sprint teams, they do all their bits, they fix all their defects. There's very few defects that make it out of the sprint into the integration stage. It's then that end-to-end integration where lots of bits come together, you're running a series of regression tests for a couple of weeks, you raise your defects, and then you go around again, you, you fix them, and then it's at the end you report how many defects are left outstanding, and then it's that when you have the discussion. Yeah. That's the yeah. only point in the whole process, end-to-end from when projects can conceptualize where defects matter where we've got okay we've got three p2s left open what are they can we live with it have we got workarounds in place are the customers going to be impacted yes they are right we need to fix them that kind of discussion i'm happy to have those discussions at that point but but really we should have fixed them all earlier but i think if you've got a process like that i think you end up having more detail in those books because the turnaround iterative time of fixing them Absolutely. is not that day, that week. You've generally got to go back to the team who's moved on for yeah. a week or two. Yeah, yeah. So your, your flow has got to be different. And it makes sense that it depends, as we said earlier. Every team does things differently. So, yeah. It's... David, what's your thoughts? I agree. It depends on the context, which seems to be another one of our catchphrases. It does, doesn't it? And <laughs> especially in the company I work for, there are so many different projects we work on. So we do work on Agile, we do work on Vmodel. The thing that I would say is whichever way it should be done, the tester should talk to the developer at any point, you know, to get their point of view, to find out where the defect is likely to be, how severe it is, and how much detail the developer will need in order to fix it. Because there may be logs. And it depends on the severity, again, as to how soon it is. So therefore, if it's going to be a long-term fix, you need more evidence to show where you actually find it in the steps that were actually done. It's the communication between the developers and the testers, irrespective of the type of methodology you're using, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. Definitely communication is the number one thing. Agreed. There you go. Something we all agree on. <laughs> For a change. Yeah, it makes a change. Probably now time to say adieu. So 
Bye. Thank you very much for listening to us talk about defect management. If you want to give us some feedback, feel free to reach out to us at contact us at testingpeers.com or our Twitter handle, uh, testingpeers. And feel free to go help us, support us at Patreon. Uh, but thank you very much for listening to us. We look forward to you tuning in again next time. For now, it's goodbye from the testing peers. Goodbye. Goodbye.